Welcome to a new episode of David's Politics Show. So last time we talked about what happened at the Capitol just the other day. And in this episode, I actually want to go back a couple years and, and think about why people voted for Trump in 2016. Uh, this is, of course, different analytically from the question of why people voted for him in 2020, after his four years in office, after the whole chaos of... Uh, COVID and the total inability to govern, uh, especially as regards to the the pandemic. Now, the laziest possible explanation for why people voted for Trump in 2016 is that they were just, his voters were just a bunch of racists. This is the so-called explanation you hear uh, very often. This was also Hillary's solution when during the... uh, uh, the race itself, uh, incredibly, she she kind of in an offhand remark uh, called all his supporters uh, the deplorable, uh, which led to, of course, to people on on Trump's side actually taking that um, term of disparagement as as a source of pride almost, and uh, calling starting to call themselves um, in a in a kind of insouciant way deplorables. The only problem with that um, explanation uh, is, of course, that a lot of Trump's supporters in 2016 were people who had voted for the Democrats uh, when that was still a work, uh, the party of the so-called working class, and they had voted for Obama twice. And they didn't have a problem with that. Many of them voted as their labor union uh, suggested they, uh, they should. Obama was a Democrat. They were working class folks and therefore tended to vote for the Democratic Party. So more generally, the point is that only talking about racism uh, obscures the real problems. It confuses the issues more than it clarifies them. To truly understand Trumpism as a phenomenon, we have to look back at least 20 years. In fact, we have to go back to the end of the Cold War and the rise of two very powerful ideological forces, neoconservatism and neoliberalism. Starting with the first, with neoconservatism, this was of course the view that America should export its values with a muscular foreign policy that states could be reshaped, that America itself was a functioning example of what a democracy should look like, that it had competitive markets, uh, a vibrant press, etc. And this, of course, always obscured America's own faults. It's rampant and growing inequality. It's terrible healthcare system. The basic fact that most Americans were completely ignorant of the rest of the world and weren't much interested in it. Uh, Not to mention the complexities of the Middle East, which, of course, many Americans did not understand, even among the elites. And, of course, it's extremely broken uh, financial system, as uh, as would be seen then in 2007-2008. And in, in 2003, it was this view, this neoconservative view, which ultimately prevailed in the early part of the Bush administration. People like Richard Pearl, uh, Dick Cheney, etc. And it was the important point here, I think, is that uh, if you cast your mind back to the early years of the uh, Iraq war, uh, you know, there was a lot of talk about, oh, it's just for the oil, etc. It was not all about oil. Part of the American elites 
was genuinely convinced that America would do the world a favor by throwing its weight around, using its enormous wealth, and at that time certainly unchallenged military power to reshape certain parts of the world in a supposedly benign, uh, benign way and in a way that would make them more like America, which was taken as the model. And 9-11, of course, then added rocket fuel to this view and provided a vector for it, because as we now know, uh, almost two decades uh, after that, that war was, uh, was initiated, it's clear that it had very little to do with 9-11 as an act of terrorism, and it's ju- it was, it was, 9-11 was simply the excuse that was used to start a war that was desired by some for ideological, for totally independent ideological reasons. The result, of course, was a stupid, pointless, endless war, which was not won and could not have been won, um, for ways that, or for reasons rather, that remind one in some ways of Vietnam, another catastrophic and deeply traumatic experience in American history, which has, however, already been uh, largely forgotten, uh, even just a couple of generations uh, after that that war was fought. Uh, what were some of the similarities? Well, there was a kind of amorphous. Obviously, there were there are many differences, and one, one cannot and one should one should not elide them. But some of the similarities were uh, an, an amorphous enemy, an insurgency kind of warfare. Um, uh, certainly, in South Vietnam, that was that, that was uh, true. Um, even though, of course, the North Vietnamese did have a regular conventional army as well, the fact that there was a, a kind of total reconstruction of society was needed, especially in Iraq, where the Americans um, broke the existing uh, system. Not that it was a great one, obviously, under Saddam, but they, they they broke the system and therefore were inevitably bound to uh, to to reconstruct it, as Colin Powell used to say: "Once you break it, you own it." And then, of course, the other um, line of continuity is the the American impatience to get the boys home, the American impatience with longer-term uh, semi-imperial fantasies. Uh, the Americans are simply not that interested in staying abroad for decades and decades, but that's what it takes if you want to reshape a society. And so, who did the fighting? Well, America has, of course, uh, unlike in Vietnam, uh, America had in 2003 a, uh, a, an army that was not based on the draft, uh, and it was largely the working class that, that fought that war. It was, uh, it was folks in the working class uh, who got blown up in, in IEDs, who got shot by snipers, etc. It wasn't largely, with a couple exceptions here and there, uh, the sons and daughters of the elites at the fancy schools where people like Dick Cheney and Richard Pearl uh, had studied and who had uh, come up with these uh, crazy ideas of you know refashioning the Middle East and America's image, etc. And it was the same thing in Afghanistan. An endless war, billions spent abroad on an obviously futile attempt to build a functioning state in what is an entirely medieval society, and that's almost an insult to the Middle Ages, uh, all of this, of course, bred disillusionment in the elites. The elites clearly messed up. They clearly were not able to govern. They had sacrificed um, billions and billions and 
very many young young lives on uh, really quixotic fantasies uh, of American power. And the other major ideological driving force was, of course, neoliberalism. The view that markets should be, quote-unquote, free, whatever that means, of course, uh, but certainly as unconstrained as possible in terms of the ability of labor to organize, uh, to fight for better wages, better working conditions, etc. Which is, by the way, a departure from... Um, earlier periods in American history. If you think about the early trust busting in the in the uh, early late 19th, early 20th century, if you think about the New Deal, the the particularly brutal form of American capitalism that we have now is actually a fairly recent uh, development. Really began in the in the 70s and then started to really pick up steam in the 80s. Um, and so there was this view that that especially since the end of the Cold War really gain ground, which is that uh, the markets should be as unconstrained as, as, as possible, as I said. But of course, in fact, what was happening is that markets were being rigged more and more by powerful corporations, which simply lobbied to uh, create the marketplace that they wanted to play in. Uh, this, of course, all, all resulted in, in higher prices for healthcare, and even for things like phone and inter- internet service, even nowadays. Uh, almost no safety net, very little, very few unemployment benefits. Uh, any kind of healthcare issue could immediately bankrupt you, and that's even if you did have health insurance, which of course, something like 30 million Americans, even to this day, after Obamacare, don't. Uh, and all this created, of course, a permanent sense of anxiety. And then uh, the, the final paroxysm of the neoliberal uh, dream came, of course, in the display of the totally dysfunctional nature of American capitalism uh, in 2007-2008, when the the state, in fact, did intervene massively, um, both in terms of um, the various uh, schemes that were invented to uh, recapitalize the banks, uh, the Federal Reserve did a whole bunch of things, but the point is that these are all technical, arcane technical details that 99% of the population doesn't understand. What they did see, however, is that nobody got punished. None of the bankers got punished. Nobody went to jail. No, no one even channeled their anger. And in the meantime, who was paying the price for all those mortgages which had, given been, which had been given out, um, knowing that the, the people receiving them would not be able to pay if interest rates went up, etc., etc., it was the lower working class and the working class which lost their houses, which were, which were kicked out unceremoniously, while the bankers simply got a slap on the wrist and then went back to their multi-million-dollar mansion. All of that creates a lot of anger, and uh, when Obama came in, he did not know how to channel the people's anger because he himself did not feel it. The important point to remember is that Obama himself grew up in a very privileged uh, situation. He had a very privileged childhood. He was never poor. He never had to fear for his own economic well-being. He himself is a product of the elite. Uh, he's a Harvard Law School guy. Uh, and he did not, he was not able to, uh, to give voice 
to the anger that was building. And that anger continued to fester. And, we, and they were, you could see first signs of it already in 2008 with Sarah Palin, which was really, who was really the forerunner to Trump. And then, of course, building in 2010 and 2012, up to 2012, more or less, uh, with the Tea Party, uh, which was the, one of the first symptoms of the fraying uh, of the American uh, body politic. Now, what could have counteracted this dynamic uh, in American politics? Well, a functioning left. And what I mean by that is a left that would have been able to create, nurture, and channel a discourse based on class, on economic concerns, on the very real class war that was being waged against the, the middle class and, and the working class uh, by, by the elites. Instead, the modern left, uh, and by modern I mean since largely the 60s, especially in the United States, and especially driven by intellectuals in the academy, is only interested in identity politics, where identity is construed exclusively, almost exclusively, in terms of race and gender, but not in terms of economic uh, considerations. Um, and that is that discourse is not only extremely ineffective because it only addresses certain segments of the electorate, but it can easily be hijacked by the elites themselves. And you see the perfect example of this in, in the rise of the proliferation of so-called diversity boards, etc., by powerful corporations that then continue to rig markets, continue to uh, immiserate uh, their 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 workers, uh, etc. Identity politics, as it has uh, developed, especially in the United States, although it then migrated to Europe as well. Uh, has fragmented society into, especially American society, into little groups instead of, which are largely concerned with their own um, self-referential issues, instead of creating big political blocks around common economic interests, which was historically the purpose of the left. The reason we have weekends, the reason we have welfare states, to some extent, at least in Europe, uh, the reason we have... Um, all sorts of protections for workers is that there was a discourse uh, which united all sorts of people around their common economic concerns. And uh, the, the people who are left left out of precisely that kind of discourse of race and gender are guess who? The people who are not, uh, who don't stand out in terms of race, in other words, the whites in American society, and uh, the, especially the lower class whites precisely Trump's base. And what the left never understood and continues to uh, fail to understand now is that it's not the only one who can play the identity politics game. Others can do that too. And Trump did precisely that. So we've had a failure of the elites in terms of foreign policy, which has cost billions and lots of lives. We've had a failure of the elites, which has, which has caused a massive financial crisis, caused uh, all sorts of economic pain. In comes Trump. And Trump, running against Hillary, who, by the way, let's not forget, had already lost to another essentially relatively little-known uh, political operative, namely Obama. In comes Trump, and Trump starts saying that 
starts telling people that the game is rigged. Well, you know what? It is. It is rigged. He's right about that. Just because it's coming from Trump's mouth doesn't mean that it's false. Think about, for example, the way the elites bribe the the, the so-called elite schools, the, the Princeton, Yale, Stanford's, etc. of the world, to take their kids. I mean, we call it contributions, alumni donations, etc. But bribery is what it is. And there's a reason um, people do it. There was a scandal a couple of, a couple of years ago uh, or a year ago about uh, parents doing that in a, in, in, a, in a more kind of crude fashion, literally paying actual bribes. And I think some even went to jail for it. But that's the silly way of doing it. The much better way of doing it is simply uh, paying for the construction of a building and you're absolutely guaranteed that your your child, who may not be that bright and may not be that deserving, will nonetheless get into an elite school. Uh, let me give you another banal, banal example. On the Morning Joe show, which is a popular cable news show, the, the, the show is named after Joe Scarborough, who is a kind of old-school Republican. But his wife is Mika Brzezinski, who is the daughter of Zbigniew Brzezinski, who was Carter's uh, national security advisor. Now... Big Brzezinski was extremely cultured, extremely intelligent, uh, well-traveled, really serious thinking person. Mika Brzezinski is really only there because of her father, because her surname is Brzezinski. Anyone who's watched the show knows uh, that she is not a uh, particularly bright or interesting person. But the, the, the point is that she would not have had the career she did if it weren't for her father's uh, connections. And she's a, a shining example of the injustice of, uh, of American society, which calls itself meritocratic, but is anything but. And Trump, the, the, the key thing about Trump is that he showed the people who started to be attracted to, to his kind of politics that he's, he despised the elites, just as much as they did, just as much as, as his supporters did. And not only did, did he ha show signal to them that he had the same enemies as it were as them, but also he was he himself was hated and despised and looked down on and made fun of by the elites, just as his supporters feel that they are. And this explains why the, the, the elites in general became, over the Trump years, uh, an object of hate by his supporters. Not just the Democrats as a narrow political um, segment, let's say, of the, of the electorate, but liberals more generally, and also mainstream Republicans, and even the media. Anyone that belonged to the elites, the chattering classes, the people that don't, that don't really have to be that concerned about their job security, who can just sit on Twitter and, and pontificate about all sorts of things without really paying the, the real economic costs of these, uh, of these decisions. That's why the Trump phenomenon became a personality cult rather than a political movement based around any kind of ideology or values. Because the people who voted for him in 2016 uh, felt that he, he was the only one who could understand them, who could feel their pain, who could channel their anger. Who, who finally could give them a voice. So I think, as, I've, as I hope I've uh, been able to express, it's, it's all just a little bit more complicated than uh, his supporters all being quote-unquote racists 
whatever that term uh, is in turn supposed to mean, which is uh, is itself not not at all clear. But anyway, this uh, will conclude this episode of David's Politics Show. Thank you very much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed it. Until the next episode, so long.